Well, it's time to begin. Good morning, everyone. I'm Vasily Osachak, and in case you need the spelling, it's right there. <laughs> uh, the name is not very common around here. I come from the Ukraine, right on the border of the Ukraine and Romania. So, a little town of Chernivtsi, or Chernauts, if it's Romanian language. So, um, I grew up there uh, when I was 16. I was introduced to the world of bees in the Ukraine. And what an interesting world that is. Since uh, I was 16 and now I'm 52, that's almost 40 years, like 30 plus years, I've been learning about bees and still am learning. There's so much to learn about bees. So it's one of those mysteries that God put out there for us to explore. And um, I'm so thankful God made uh, honeybees. Because they are lots of fun, very interesting world. Um, so today we're going to explore beekeeping. That's what we'll do today. Uh, first of all, I'll introduce you to my family. I'll tell you a bit more about myself. I am a minister by education, ministered in Texas most of my life, about 13 years. Pastored a few churches there. Then pastored in Canada for three years in Toronto. And then our kids grew up to be academy age, and we were looking for a good academy for them, and we chose Weimar Academy, and we moved there. So I teach at Weimar Academy, I teach agriculture. So um, my family, I'll show you next slide, please. And that's my family there. Actually, that's our Weimar farm. And uh, right there, you can see a couple of my beehives right there, a few of them. But you can imagine how beautiful it is you know, God created us not to just be in the office, right? Just or going to classroom. That's not true education, right? The true education happens out in the fields, out in the open, out with nature that God created, or with, with, uh, with all the creatures that he put out there for us to explore and learn about them. Not only learn how they work, but also learn to care for them. Because that's what God is like. He cares for us. So he wants us to learn to care for them too. You know that God put within us desire to be connected with those that are inferior to us, like animals, pets, insects, have connections with equal to us, like we are doing right now. We are connecting, we are talking, we are going to be discussing things. So that's important. It's within us. We also have the need that God put within us to connect with, with higher power with God himself. We need all those three levels of connections with God, with each other, and with those uh, forms of life that are inferior to ours, like, like pets. And most of you probably have a pet or two. And that's a special bond, right? <laughs> I have a dog who is 12 and uh, a cat. My kids were just about the age of you kids there in the back. And they adopted uh, from a pound, local pound in Texas, a kitty and a puppy. And they grew to get, grew up together, and they grew up to be like friends and brother and sister, those cat and dog. And they are still, you know, tackling each other sometimes. The cat would jump on the dog. Even the dog is big, the cat has so much fun tackling the dog down. <laughs> of course, doesn't have much success, but they still play. And that dog and that cat went with us from Texas all the way to Canada, and from Canada all the way to California. And, and that's what we need to learn, caring for others for little forms of life like small insignificant pets which are pretty much precious to us today and then caring for each other 
and then also being good children to our Heavenly Father. So that's what's necessary. And that's what's so important about being on a farm. Being on, like some, some morning, I'd come here to the colonies, you know, I'd walk, my dog would follow me, and our cat would follow me too. He thinks, or she thinks, she's a dog. So she's walking with us all the way, you know, here to the bees. I will open a hive, and I look out on the mountains, and behind these clouds there, there's high peaks, tall sierras. Behind them, there's Lake Tahoe. And you just look at those mountains in the summer, like June or May. They are covered with snow, and it's blue sky, and it's sunny, and you open your hive. And, and you feel so much in connection with God, with your Creator. And that, that's what true education is. And that's uh, why it's so important for us to, to be engaged in um, things other than just classroom learning. Of course, we're doing classroom learning today. Um, it's kind of uh, a little cool to be outdoors. <laughs> but we would be outdoors if, if it was a, a warmer day. So uh, this is the farm. We have bears on this farm. And um, when the bears are hungry, like November, when they come out for apples and you know, other fruit they want to collect, they can sniff your hives out too. And you know, it's not just a cartoon story. And folks, if you want to join us here, there's a few more seats here. It's probably not very convenient to sit there, but if you're good there, that's fine too. So it's not just a funny story that bears you know, like honey. They really love honey. They also love brood or baby, baby bees. <laughs> they, they go for your brood, they scrape it out, they eat the, the larva, they eat the honey. They are just so happy to, hive a hive, to find a hive. So if you keep bees somewhere in the wild um, territory like in the mountains, that's very important to know that uh, bears like honey too. Occasionally they would take a hive or two. Once I came to the, to the to the bees to check on them. And as a, it was on a different location, but also out here in the, in the mountains. So I exited the car, shut the door, and I looked down to where the hives are, and I see a bear with a hive like this, you know. <laughs> as soon as I shut that door, he turned around, you know. And he looked, and he was very cautious and careful as he placed that hive down, you know, because it's a two-story hive. So he didn't drop it, he just went like this. <laughs> then he went on all four <laughs> and took off as fast as he could. You know, they do that. And they really enjoy a good meal, a good dessert. After they gorge on apples right here, above this, there's apple orchard at Wima Farm. Of course, we have plums, they love plums. They don't bother picking each individual plum. They just tear off a branch, you know, of a tree and just sit down. I saw them do that, actually. Sit down, you know, lean against the tree and just pick up the plums, you know, of the branch. <laughs> really funny creatures. But we have to be, to, be, um, to be very cautious there, right? Let's look um, forward. This is my wife, my son, Eric, my daughter, Melissa. This was two years ago, so they're a little bit older now. So am I. All right, let's keep going. And today we will be talking about a life cycle of a bee, all right? How the whole cycle begins and how it ends. And, and that's, that's the focus of today's um, uh, first, actually the first presentation, I'll, I'll tell you why we need bees. Actually, you'll tell me why we need bees because I'm sure you know why we need bees. Now, 
let's start with a simple question. What are a few things that the bees produce for us? Why do we like bees? Honey. We like honey. Yeah, that's the first thing. We like honey. Honey is good on a toast. Honey is good, you know, to sweeten your recipe or whatever. Now, anybody can tell me what honey actually is? It's nectar. Okay. It's nectar. And it's collected from where? From what? From flowers. Okay. So it's collected. And trees. Good. Very good. So. Good. Excellent. So we have two agriculture teachers. Correct me if I'm, I'm, I'm doing something wrong here. Well, I'm not familiar with all of this. Okay, good. So, so we have, yes? Oh, you are, you're calling folks? Yeah, folks, there's more room here. There's actually more, more seats here if you would like to join. But if you are comfortable there, that's fine too. So what else do we get from, um, from, uh, from the bees besides honey? We get wax, right? So we get, what else do we get from bees? The royal jelly. The royal jelly. The royal jelly. We get pollen. So you know a few products. Now, another question, and you know the answer too. So I don't have to teach you at all. What is the greatest contribution of honeybees to our society? Ah, there we go. That is the greatest contribution. You think that honey and pollen and royal jelly and propolis and wax are great things? Yes, they are. But far greater than all that. Yes, please, come in. Far greater than any of those products or any of those services that bees do for us, it's what you eat for breakfast. If you had blueberries today, you have to thank the Lord that he created the bees, right? Mm -hmm. If you had, you know, cucumbers, melons, if you had watermelons, if you had almonds, thank the Lord that he created honeybees. Because without honeybees, there would be no almonds at all. Now, there would be blueberries. There would be about 30% uh, less of them. There would be watermelons. would be about 50% less of watermelons on the market if it weren't for the honeybees. There would be cherries and plums. There would be less of those things, though. There would be other things that honeybees pollinate or cross-pollinate. That's an important thing. But there won't be a single almond because the almond tree depends 100% on honeybees for pollination. That's the only, well, there's a few more plants and they don't necessarily depend on honeybee. There's a type of clover that depends on other bee for pollination, another type of a bee. Anybody can guess how many varieties and kinds of bees are there, out there, you know, besides the honeybees? There's hundreds of bees, varieties of bees. Wild bees, bumblebees, tiny bumblebees, large, they all have names, I don't know the names, okay? <laughs> large bumblebees, yellow abandoned bumblebees, there's all kinds of wasps. All of them are, uh, are bees and they accomplish very similar jobs. For example, honeybee cannot pollinate tomatoes. Honeybees don't know how to pollinate tomatoes. So if you plant tomatoes and say, oh great, I need pollinators, so let me put a couple of beehives there. You know, honey beehives. And you put the honey beehives and nothing happens and you wonder why. It's because the honeybee doesn't know how to extract nectar from the tomato flower. Tomato flower is very unique. Like, unlike other flowers that honeybees visit, they release nectar by themselves, you know, on their own volition. And all the honeybee is doing is 
basically flying around, landing on a flower, picking up some nectar and pollen and taking it back to the hive. Tomatoes are different. Tomatoes would not release nectar unless the insect that's visiting is large enough, strong enough, and can vibrate the flower strong enough that the nectar would be released from the bottom of that flower. And the only thing that can do that is a bumblebee that is large enough and he knows how to, to buzz strong enough with enough resonance to vibrate or shake that, that flower up to release nectar. So bumblebees are great pollinators for what? Tomatoes. Okay. So we have hundreds of other varieties of bees. They all are very important for crop production. You can order actually if you grow blueberries. Anybody grows blueberries? Okay. If you don't have enough blueberries, it might be because of pollination issues. So have honeybees, they increase their production. But also you can buy bumblebees. They also pollinate blueberries very well. So these are a few things that bees do besides making honey, besides making propolis and, and, and things like that. Why do we need bees in our gardens, guys, again? Besides all the goodies? For cross-pollination. That's very, very important. Cross-pollination is not only increasing the number of the berries or the watermelons or, or whatever, cucumbers in your garden. It also increases their quality. The quality of your fruit is so much better. For example, a year ago, uh, we took our bees to North Dakota. And what beekeepers normally do, if they have enough money, they would buy property in North Dakota and would buy property in California. And I don't have that much money. But what beekeepers do, they knock at farmers' doors. So I went to North Dakota, and I knocked at, at farmers' doors. And you know, North Dakota is such a large state, thousands of acres. A good farmer doesn't farm 20 acres or 100 acres. A good farmer farms about 10,000 acres. That's what North Dakotan farmers do. So you drive for two or three miles you know, to the next farmhouse, you knock at the door, and they all are good Germans there. And they would come out, and you, you talk to them, and they say, oh, sure, please bring your bees to my farm. You have to be a fool not to want bees on your farm. So one guy never had bees on his farm, and he grew like alfalfa and other things for hay. But he also had a garden, and he didn't have very good success. So I told him, well, why don't you try? If you never had bees on your farm, why don't you try? It might help your garden. And he said, oh, well, let's try this year. He was an older guy, but he wanted to try something new. So we put some bees there. And in the fall, you know, the tradition is, or, or the, the normal beekeeper's habit is, after you kept the bees at somebody's farm for three months or so, you bring them a bucket of honey at the end of the season and say, hey, thank you very much. You know, we appreciated your allowing us staying here. And as I gave him that bucket of honey, he said, hey, come here, I'll show you something. So he's taking me to his shed. And, and he says, come see, come see, come see, come see. I said, what? Well, I'm coming into that shed. And he's showing me, you know, all the beautiful squash, all the beautiful pumpkin, all the beautiful, nicely shaped things he harvested including cantaloupe and things like that in North Dakota, you know? And, and he said, I've never had a crop like this before. 
and I thought, well, great, wonderful. You see, just a few colonies of bees will help your crops and your crops will increase not just maybe by two watermelons or one or two percent. Your crop actually increases about what? 30, 40, 50 percent. So your yield is much greater. That's why it's so important if you have a garden, especially if you grow something for seed. Anybody grows your own seeds? If you do, it's very important. Because if you don't have cross-pollination, you might have some fruit but there won't be as many seeds in your fruit and there won't be, the, the quality of the seed won't be as good. So if you, especially if you're growing oil producing seeds, anybody heard of canola? Anybody seen what canola actually is? It's mustard, sort of like a mustard type plant. Canola is actually a commercial name to it. Canadian oil, can all. Canola. <laughs> it's not a plant. It's a yes, yes. It's rapeseed. Yes, it's 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 a it's what belongs to cruciferous family. And you remember what cruciferous mean? Anybody remembers? It's flower that is shaped like a cross. Cruce is Latin for cross. Thero is Greek for bear or resemble or carry. So cruciferous. It's a plant that bears or carries a shape of a cross. When it sprouts from a seed, it also, the leaves have a form of four-angled leaves, you know, like any cruciferous thing, any cabbage, any, any mustard, any, any, anything that's cruciferous, cauliflower, broccoli, have very similar uh, false leaves when they sprout from the seed. Interesting. When they progress in development, they all become mature, eventually start blossoming. And when they blossom, the shape of their flower is four-petaled cross-shaped flower. It could be a tiny little cross-shaped flower or a larger cross-shaped flower. It could, be any, it could be any color, mostly yellow, sometimes purple, sometimes white, pink. If you, we actually have beautiful festivals in, in California, and they're called mustard festivals. <laughs> you won't believe this. But when mustards bloom, and normally mustard is a ground cover in, in the orchards, and you can till it under, you know, after they blossomed, you till, it, till them under to increase your nitrogen and, and organic matter in your soil. So bef right before they till them under, they actually have festivals of blossoms of, uh, of mustards. They are gorgeous, and I think I'll show you a picture. That won't be fair if I don't show you a picture of mustard blossoms. I might have one here. I'll have to exit this and uh, ah okay which we'll, we'll watch a video it's just as fun just just look at those colors if they show <laughs> there we go and we actually have mustard blossom festivals there Right there, close to Weimar in the valley, by the way, all Central Valley in California has opportunity. You probably see some bees flying there too, probably. But if you don't, maybe it's a cool day. Yeah, it's a cool day. But you have like hundreds and hundreds of acres of orchards, and then you see all these mustards, beautifully colored, all colored. You see the color, the, the shape of the flower? You see how they cross-shaped? It doesn't matter the, the, by the way, I need to silence my phone too. 
So it's a beautiful site. Besides being a beautiful site, it's an important culture for oil production. Of course, these are wild mustards, okay? But there's bright orange, slightly smaller flower mustards that are, or, or canola, commercially called canola, but it's a plant, they grow for oil. And it's very important to have bees to pollinate or cross-pollinate these, these uh, flowers so they would produce wonderfully rich in oil seeds, that fully mature, good-sized seeds. You have to have bees for that, all right? So that's why you are looking into getting bees, I hope, to increase the yields of your gardens and to, to improve the quality of the seeds in your gardens. Well, I think you're getting a little bit bored by this, so we'll stop it. Okay, so where were we? Right here. If you're growing heirloom plants, will you have problems with cross-pollinating different things? Um, how, do you how do you protect like an heirloom? Yes. What happens with cross-pollination, folks? Cross-pollination is a good thing. Now, what happens with cross-pollination is if you are growing all kinds of varieties of plants, the pollen will be transferred from one plant to another, and the properties of one plant will be reflected in the yield and the fruit and the seed quality of the other. So when you plant the seed that was cross-pollinated with another plant, this seed will grow a plant that will resemble the two. There will be some kind of blend of those. If you remember your nature classes or science classes, you have pink petunia, you have red, no, you have red and white to begin with, right? If you studied genetics, you can see all the varieties you could come with. So, the question that was asked, what happens when you are growing heirloom plants? That's the question, if you have cross-pollination. What eventually will happen, they will be cross-bred. They will inherit the qualities of both. That's what will happen. Now you are concerned about purity of your seed. If you're growing tomatoes, you're fine. Why are you fine? Yes, the honeybees do not, do not visit tomato flowers or blossoms because they are not interested. To them, they do not produce nectar in spite of the fact that they actually produce. The honeybee just is not large enough and doesn't know how to handle the flower to release the nectar. That's all. It's a funny, how, funny thing how honeybees sometimes learn to extract nectar from flowers they can't naturally obtain the, the nectar. For example, there's a blossom called honeysuckle. It's a trumpet-shaped, very long blossom, about this long. And, the, and it's a fairly narrow thing, too. So a, a regular-sized honeybee that's pretty sizable, you know, compared to the, to the blossom, cannot actually go inside of the honeysuckle blossom and extract nectar from the bottom of it. So there's plenty of nectar. You remember doing that in your childhood, picking up honeysuckle? Mm, sweet. Now the honey, the, the nectar that's there is available, but the bee doesn't know how to extract it. Here's what happens. A bumblebee who has much stronger mandibles, or the jaws, goes to those flowers and munches a hole in the side close to the bottom of the flower of the honeysuckle blossom and sucks out the nectar. Then the honeybee observes the bumblebee and says, hey, 
it looks like that guy know, knows the, the mechanics of this thing here. So the honeybee would go and land on the flower and go to the same hole that was munched through by a bumblebee and get some nectar out of that honeysuckle. That's what they do. They, they learn as they go. So even though, I see a question, we'll do it in a moment. Even though not every flower is attended or is visited by the honeybee, most of the flowers produce some kind of nectar. It's just the accessibility that is, is hard. So what happens, uh, to, to finalize the answer to that question, what happens when you have cross-pollination and you are growing you know, pure variety of, of whatever? It'll be cross-bred. It'll, it'll inherit both qualities of, of, of both plants that have been cross-pollinated. Cross sometimes, sometimes it enhances the quality of the final product, but the final product won't happen until you plant the seed produced after cross-pollination. So, for example, I heard people say, if you plant cucumbers, do not plant uh, melons right next to it because, you know, the pollen from cucumbers will get onto the pollen of, of your cantaloupe and your cantaloupe will be bitter or will taste like cucumbers. Well, both of them are same family plants. <laughs> Cucumber is a melon that's shaped in a different way. <laughs> All right? By the way, I come from a region where we have some Turkish folks, where I grew up, our land um, in the Ukraine belonged to Austro-Hungarians at, 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 at some time. Then after them came the Turks, then came the Russians, then, then came the Romanians, then came the Ukrainians. So basically the land went back and forth many times and a portion of it in the south was, uh, was uh, held by the Greeks prior to all this kind of stuff. So we had Greeks governing that land, we had Austrians governing that land, we had Romanians, Russians, Ukrainians, and Turks. Now the Turks had a very interesting habit. When they eat their cucumbers, they slice their cucumber, and that habit still remains in that region. People still do that. They take a slice of cucumber, instead of putting salt on it or whatever European, other Europeans do, they put honey on their cucumber. <laughs> and they eat that cucumber with honey, and it has a taste of a sweet cantaloupe or sweet melon <laughs> when you do it that way. So what happens? You, you, you planted a row of cucumbers and a row of, of cantaloupe, and you say, ah, ah, this cantaloupe will be bitter or will taste like cucumbers. No, it won't, because the pollen of this season will not affect the production of, of this plant right next to it. It is the second generation of the seed that was produced after the cross-pollination that will inherit the qualities of the another, another plant. So if you want to grow pure seeds, if, you, if it's tomatoes, it's fine because the bees do not cross-pollinate those and, and you, it, you know, don't be afraid of that. But if you are growing things like cucumbers, yes, like any melons, they will cross-pollinate and the resulting variety will inherit qualities of two different plants. There was a question here and then a question there. So let's take this one. You answered my question already. Okay, the answer was there. Yes? So in the next season, if you wanted a sweeter taste in cucumber, would it be beneficial to plant <laughs> you can uh, You can play with... The question is, if you want to, to hybridize your, your, your plant and, and have a better quality cucumber, for example, sweeter cucumber, do you plant some melons next to it? That's the question. Um, the answer is you experiment and you, you try because that's in, in science, it's called selection. You try all kinds of things. 
I grew up next to a selection institute in a small town, and we had a school of selection of plant or seed production kind of facility. So to achieve the result they wanted, they had to do thousands and thousands of experiments, planting things next to each other, irradiating their seeds, uh, using some harsh chemical to the seed, hoping that that jarring of that seed will produce some kind of mutation or some kind of desirable result. Of course, most of the results are were not desirable, you know, in these kind of selection methods. You have thousands of trials or, or experiments, and most of them turn disastrous, except one thing might be improved. And then the selectionist scientist will take that one sample of thousands of experiments and say, hey, this has a good quality. Uh, and, and they would transplant it in, and very carefully transplant it somewhere special, you know, <laughs> and then grow it there and try to produce seeds out of that thing. Breeders do that with their cattle. They notice that this particular variety of cattle or hen or whatever is so good at such, such and such thing. And they will carefully protect that and try to reduplicate it again and again and again and then have a new strain, a new variety. Same thing with the seeds. Biotechnology also involves a very undesirable manipulation of genetic material, mm -hmm. sometimes chemically, sometimes it's very dangerous too. So, yeah. so, especially when you mess with gene itself. Now today's uh, science uh, is capable of actually cutting out a segment of genetic sequence and inserting it, inserting it in another plant's genetic material, hoping for a certain result. Some of them are supposedly good results, like you can get um, broccoli with better keratin in it, and your broccoli will look orange. You know, you would have a potato that has a certain segment of genetic strain that would repel Colorado beetle bug. Anybody knows what Colorado beetle bug is? You do? Good, because in my Soviet country, where Russians blame everything bad for, on Americans, we call the Colorado beetle bug, Colorado bug, yes. <laughs> or Colorado beetle, because the theory in Soviet Union was that the Americans on their huge high-flying bomber, you know, brought the Colorado beetle to Soviet Union and dropped it on our fields, and now we have Colorado beetle <laughs> eating our potato crops. It's a horrible pest in the country where I'm from. If you plant potatoes, they sprouted. Two weeks later, the Colorado beetle is upon them. Here in the U.S., I didn't see much, unless in Colorado they are... They uh, do if they're... Um, if you plant and they, they are like... The research that I did on this, they kind of go into the ground, too. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like they'll come right back to an area where you've already planted. Mm -hmm. So it's like whatever they leave behind there, mm -hmm. they reproduce in that area. And I experienced that. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, it's not from the Colorado bug, but back from the bees and the tomatoes, uh, we at uh, Prime College Franklin had that we grow 10 different varieties of heirlooms. Uh -huh. uh, we have bees in each, each, each greenhouse. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that uh, some of those tomatoes that I see that are yellow, they have red tints or I don't know. Uh, the question was, 
the, the tomatoes that are you know, orange with red striation or the other way around, are they cross-pollination? I don't know. I didn't research that, that, that thing, but most, seed book. most likely there's a variety of seed that you could buy like that. Most and, likely, it's and my they guess. Said it's heirloom. It's heirloom. Yeah, because my class is going to plant them this year. There, there we go. Yeah. This lady is, is, is um, uh, researching that, that uh, particular question. So. Yeah, I don't know the answer, how they achieved that. Possibly that's how they achieved it, but to achieve some kind of beneficial change in, in the seed variety, um, you will have somehow to cause that change or cross-breed the plants. So I don't know whether it's a result of cross-breeding or some kind of um, chemical or radiological effect on a seed that caused that, that mutation. Basically, mutation could be damaging or could be beneficial. So what, uh, what agriculturalists do, they choose the, the mutations that were beneficial and try to capitalize or am amplify those and, and reduplicate those. So that's what happens. Okay, why do we need bees in the garden? You, I, I didn't keep my time. Anybody has a watch? Because I need to keep it to... And our next class starts at 9.15, right? So we have about, uh, about 15 moments. Next class, 9.30? Oh, we have 15 more minutes? Okay. 9.15, Oh, okay. So we have like 25 more minutes. So let's talk more about these things. Because we, we need to stick to the subject. So um, let's look at some of, uh, yeah, go ahead to the next slide. Yeah, go back. This is not a good slide. <laughs> uh, let me show you a better picture. Um, I'll show you a picture of, um, of bee in action, pollinating things. Um, some of the flowers that bees visit are hosting not just one bee at a time, but uh, like five, ten bees at a time. And let me show you some of the sh shots. Uh, actually, I'll show you some videos too. Watch this. How many bees do you see in this? Like three or four. There's one at the very bottom, another here, another here, another here. This is a... Um, uh, this is a squash uh, blossom. You know, squash blossoms are fairly large blossoms, and uh, they can host many bees at the same time. Notice that um, they do not fight with each other, these guys. When uh, some of you are beekeepers, and you probably know how each colony has their unique chemical ID, sort of like a license tag on your car, but not each individual bee is the whole colony. Uh, that's a poor analogy. Let me get you a better one. It's like your passport. You are the citizens of the USA, most likely, I assume. And each one of you has unique identification, right? However, all of those IDs you have say that you are a US citizen. So each colony of bees has a passport. 
They are unique country. Each colony is a unique country. They have their passport. This colony has their passport. This colony has their passport. If these guys accidentally go into this hive, the guards in this hive will not let them through. It's like, like a naturalization and immigration control kind of thing. And what happens? If these guys persist and push through, there's a very interesting thing that happens. The soldiers or guards that will start fighting those. And if those bees uh, that are intruders become humble and ask for asylum, it's a special position that the bee has to assume. It's called begging bee position. The bee actually bows down, head on the, on the landing board, raise its wings and fans slightly so her glands will release her chemical ID or the pheromone that identifies that bee as a citizen of this colony or that colony. So the bee would do that. Then the immigration officer at this hive will say, okay, we'll naturalize you. You'll become our, our citizen. It can happen. And from this moment on, this bee will belong to this colony. So they normally would fight However, when they visit flowers pollinating, guess what? They don't fight. They work, even though this bee is from USA and this is from Russia, they are still friendly to each other on this blossom. They are feeding together. Anybody read stories about World War II, how German soldiers and Russian or American soldiers, <laughs> when there was no fighting and they all were thirsty or hungry and there was a well somewhere, you know, or a place they all wanted to go and get some food or water. It would friendly interact. Sometimes would have a meal together, soldiers of different armies, right? Same thing with the bees. They are friendly, they, they don't fight. A question, yes? Yes, now you're saying this now, you have, um, I know like you were showing your hives, you have several hives, so is each hive a different colony or are they all part of the same okay. thing you have them together? All right, good question. I know they do a dance, in order to show them where the honey is, True. the nectar is, I mean, when they bring it back. Good question. Each colony that you saw in the picture there, each stack, is one colony, one country. All the species, all the individual bees in each stack are uniquely citizens of that particular country, of that particular colony. Each colony has unique passports or unique chemical IDs or unique pheromone. Anybody knows the meaning of the word pheromone? Okay, it's a, another good combination of, of, of words. It's two Greek words. Thero means bear or carry or resemble. And mono means unique or single or one. So pheromone is a, a something that carries unique signature. Unique signature. So each colony has unique chemical signature. And they all are sharing this pheromone, which identifies them as USA citizens or Soviet Union that doesn't exist anymore citizen, right? By the way, I held Soviet Union passport up until like six years ago, which is funny. I didn't have American, but then I got an American passport. So, so I lived here like 20 plus years now in the US. And about only six or seven years ago, I got the U.S. passport. So how far apart do you put your hives then if they're, they're all different? Okay, good, good question. Uh, if you have a garden and you want to put some 
some uh, colonies in your garden. And by the way, why do you want the bees in your garden, guys? Pollination. Pollination. It's very important for, for increase in production. And if you're growing almonds, if you want any almonds, then you must have bees. There's no almonds without bees, honeybees. There will be bumblebees, but they don't know and don't know how to work the flower, the almond flower, right? So you want to place bees in your garden. How do you place them? Where do you place them? The, if your garden is large, then you want to put a bee in, right in the middle of the, a, a colony right in the middle of the garden. You can put uh, colonies on each side on the perimeter of your garden. So there's most saturation and, of, of your, of, in, bee, in honeybees in your garden. Now, if your garden is small, just one or two colonies on the side of your garden would be fine. How far apart do you place them? Now, the question was, if they are different citizens, if they are different countries, if they fight each other, do you put them next to each other? The answer is very simple. Yes, you can put them as close as you want. Sometimes people build pavilions, like a trailer, with, with colonies like shoulder to shoulder. The only thing that matters is that their entrances would not be closer than maybe four or five inches. Because where this immigration control happens with the colonies, guys, what do you think? Inside of the colony? At the entrance of the colony, all right? It happens right at the entrance of the colony. So when the bees out of the colony, they could be citizen of any country and they won't fight. But when it comes to your personal property, like we Americans know, personal property, not every country knows this idea of personal property or private property. But we know that my home or house is my what? My castle. Same thing with bees. If you want them in your garden, don't be afraid. Even though they are different colonies with different chemical IDs, remember each colony, each family has their own unique passport and chemical ID. And they would fight, but you can put them as close as four inches apart, the entrances. Make sure there's some kind of board, like in a boys' bathroom stalls, you know. <laughs> Urinals in boys' bathrooms normally have a little divider, right? So make sure if, if you must have the bees this close, like in a pavilion or you live in a very tight quarter of New York City and the, the, you know, the codes allow you having bees, and you don't have room, make sure that your two colonies that you, are putting, that you are putting next to each other in your roof garden in New York are close enough, but not closer. The entrances are not closer than four inches because the, the guards on this colony entrance will be fighting the guards on this colony entrance. To prevent that, you can even put a stall divider, <laughs> a board between those entrances. Sometimes you can build one box and have multiple colonies which we call apartment buildings for the bees, right? You could do that. As long as they have separate entrances, they are fine. Now, if for whatever reason, you moved your hive a little bit, like two inches to the side or, or four inches to another side or this side, guess what happens? The navigational system of the bee is so precise that the bee will exit and you, Assume you move the bee, the bee colony just about three inches to the side. The bee will exit, fly for about an hour collecting nectar and collecting pollen, return back. Guess what? It will not go to the new location. It'll go to where the old entrance was. <laughs> like, it will be off three or four inches, 
and will start flying left and right. What's going on? Where's my entrance? Where's my home? And if you interchange them with places to the colonies, it'll try to enter a wrong colony. And the guards will stop and say, halt, who's there? Who goes there, right? <laughs> and we'll check her out. They might accept the bee if the bee asks for permission. By the way, they will always accept the bee if it brings the funds in, <laughs> right? <laughs> if the bee is bringing nectar, pollen, propolis, water, anything, they'll say, hey, what do you have there? Oh, I have some good stuff. Okay, well, come right in. It's just like Australian immigration policy, right? Anybody was interested in Australian immigration policy, I'll tell you what. They won't accept anybody in Australia today unless you have proof of, of substantial bank accounts in any country you live. If you have good funds, they'll accept you anytime. New Zealand, Australia, any, any, any of those places you want to go, you have enough funds in, in, in your bank, you can become a member of that society. Yes, question. So what happens when you move your hive to North Dakota? Do the bees try to fly back home? Good question. Thank you. Because I would have taken you in the wrong direction. So let's say you have a garden in North Dakota and you have a garden in Tennessee. or Where are you from? Texas. 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 I'm from Texas too. <laughs> Did you go to Richardson Church by any chance? No. Because your face looked familiar. I think we will pass through Rosa together. Oh, that's right. We know the same pastor. We, yeah, okay, good, good. Good to see you again, brother. So I pastored in Texas for 13 years, so I, I know many faces in Texas. But what happens if you moved your bees so far away? The normal flying pattern of a bee is about five miles. So if you have a garden, let's say, in Texas, and they were pollinating your garden in Texas and they were doing a good job, and you say, hey, my neighbor over there just one mile away has a garden. And my neighbor is begging me, bring your bees to my garden. I want the fruit just the same as yours because I like what you have in your garden. And you say, okay, no problem. And you are a new, newly baptized beekeeper, okay? And you just are learning about bees and you didn't know all the tricks yet. And you say, okay, yeah, I'll be glad to. I'll lend you my hive. Guess what happens? The flying pattern or the area they cover is roughly about five miles. When there's nothing blossoming around, they may fly as far as seven miles. But beyond seven miles, it's considered like a quarantine. They cannot fly much farther. So they, they fly about five miles around. Guess what? This is the territory they know and the map that is imprinted in their GPS system, right? If you move your colony just one mile south to your neighbor's garden, and your neighbor is so happy he got the bees, guess what happens? They are exiting that colony early morning when the sun rises, and your neighbor farmer is so happy to see them come out of the hive, and then he sees them go on the flowers everywhere, and then they fly away somewhere else. And he says, where are they flying? Guess what? They are flying home to their previous address location. So if you sell bees, do not sell bees to a person that lives a mile or two or three or four miles or five miles away. Not a good idea because you sold your bees. And guess what? About 60% of them are outdoor bees. They will fly out of his hive that you just sold and return where? back home to your house. <laughs>
<laughs> they, not, not your hive. Yes? Nothing wrong with that. That's good business. <laughs> good business, yes. <laughs> uh, good business. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, some dishonest beekeepers actually do that when they find somebody, somebody who is new to beekeeping. They would sell them these, and they live just two, three miles down the road, and about 60% of the bees will return back to your farm. And you can host them in a new hive, you can give them a queen, and you can have half of the colony there. You sold a 100% strong colony, and you retain half of them, or 60% of them. It's, it's good business in the world's eyes, but it's not good business in God's book, right? <laughs> So, when you sell bees, remember to investigate or, or advise the person who is buying bees from you and tell him, look, normal territory that the bees cover is about five miles. So, if you want to buy these bees from me, you need to first move them somewhere 10 miles away. Keep them there for a month. Why a month? Attrition. Okay, there's attrition. That's the word. Somebody said attrition? Okay, attrition, that's the correct word. Life of a bee is a very short life in the summertime. Okay, in the summertime, remember, in the warm time when the bees work, actively fly marathons every day, their life is about 35, 45 days. That's all. And the lifespan of a worker bee in the summer depends on, on the fact how hard they work. If it was raining all June and the bees didn't get out of the hive. By the way, the bees don't get out of the hive when it's raining, right? They stay indoors. Or when it's cold, they don't get out. When the temperatures are below 50 degrees, the bees don't come out, okay? Unless they have diarrhea and they are forced to come out, which happens in northern climates. Uh, the bees may, you know, have diarrhea and it's caused by several bacteria. One of them is, Nose of them is Nozema. The bee feels an urge to empty their bowels, and even in, on a frosty cold day, the bees normally don't mess their hive. So they will go out, use potty, and freeze out, and get and basically frozen on the ground, on, the, on, the, on snow. It can happen. But imagine that, that your bees are, you know, it's, it's a rainy day, rainy three weeks. And the lifespan of a bee is, I said, 35 to 45 days. However, if they didn't work for 30 days, they still have resources. It's sort of like mileage on your car. If you, you haven't been driving your car for three years, your car is not old. Well, it's sort of old chronologically, but it's not old mileage-wise, right? Same with bees. The harder they work, the faster they die. Huh. Makes us think about temperance, right? <laughs> Think temperance, guys. The bees normally um, live about 35 to 45 days. However, there's a generation of bees, and normally it's the generation that's born somewhere in September, October, November, depending on your latitude, on your climate. There's a generation of bees that are born with one single reason. It is to carry the spark of life into the next season, into the next spring. So that generation doesn't actually do much work. They don't fly out and don't, don't, don't fly marathon days, you know. They just fly out maybe to see sunshine once in a while, because winter is fairly cold. They stay indoors. Those bees can live months. They can live six, seven months long, depending on how long the winter is. The only thing they are doing is eating the honey that was collected by the previous generation, and eating the pollen, and raising one more generation of bees for the new season. 
That's their job. And they will live long lives. Now, a life, a day in the life of a bee is very difficult. Waking up at sunrise, flying out every hour, collecting something, returning back in a hive, going to bed, at, well, they don't go to bed, but going back to their hive at sunset. If you are somewhere in the northern climates, it's about 14, 15, 16 hour day, and they do it every day. They wear out so fast. Their wings actually show, show uh, signs of wear, cracks and, and chip, chipped wings, and, and eventually they can't fly anymore, and they die. They don't die in a hive. The bees are just like all Japanese people. They go out on the mountain and die there. It used to be that way, but the bees still do it today. They go out of the hive and die outside. They don't want to die in, indoors. So there was a question. Yeah, good. They live, they live all winter. I'd say how they live, how they die. Good, good, good. So it all depends on, on, on the intensity of their life. By the way, did you know that marathon running is a good thing in the eyes of health community, but as far as your personal health, how good is that, guys? It's really damaging to you. It's decreasing your lifespan. Just like the bees, if you were to run a marathon every day, your lifespan would be maybe like the life of a bee. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Another question, yes. The queen, what's the, what, how old is the queen? Living? The queens live a little longer. Can you repeat the questions? Yes. The, what was the question? Yes, the question was how long does the queen live? Okay. How long does the queen live? Anybody have a guess? Three years. Three years, two years. They are both good answers. Sometimes four years, sometimes five years. It all depends on how many eggs the queen laid. Basically, what jobs have been performed. It all depends on the mileage, basically. The more miles the queen puts out, the shorter her life. So if the queen is in a northern climate like Alaska, so the queen lays eggs only June and July. And the queen lays about 2,000 eggs a day, roughly, in the active season, like warm summer, climate with plenty of nectar. So she only lays eggs for two months. So she will probably last for about four or five years. But if the bees are in Hawaii, where the queen lays year-round, because the climate is so good and there's plenty of nectar and flowers and gardens are left and right, the queen lays 2,000 eggs daily, 12 months around, you know, all full year around. So the queen will wear out her resources much quicker and she will only last for a year, maybe two. That's why commercial beekeepers who actually push their bees to the limits on production side will only keep queens for one year because the second year queen will not be as productive. If you have a colony right here that's fresh queen, this year queen, and a colony right here, the second year queen, just two-year-old queen. This colony will produce at least two extra colonies and maybe 60 to 100 pounds of honey. This colony will produce possibly one extra colony and maybe 30 pounds of honey. You see the difference? So if you are in commercial beekeeping, you want young queens every year. So even though the queen may last longer, there's three questions. So let's take them one at a time. The young man right there first. Okay, the question is, how do you pick up the queens? There's two ways to get a queen. You can raise your own queen. You will employ your bees to do that for you because you probably, or I cannot raise a queen either. 
but the bees can raise a queen. That's one of the ways. And I'll tell you more a little later in a different segment of this class. And the second way, you can order and buy a queen from any queen rearing facilities in the USA uh, or abroad. For example, you need the queen early in the season, like right now. You may want to call Australia or New Zealand and they'll ship you a queen because it's a production season there. Yes. Now, question number two. Uh, good. Uh, was there another question there? Yes. Uh, I just missed the connection. You, you were talking about if you move a hive, it's better to move it 10 miles away and leave it there for a month. And then we got talking about the vitality of the bee, and I missed the connection. With good. You put us back on track. I lost where I was going. Thank you very much. So the question was, what's the connection between the life expectancy and how far you move the bee? The connection is this. If I'm selling the bee just to a guy one mile down the road, and he wants to keep it right there in his garden one mile down the road. If I sold my colony, I can tell him, look, 60% of these bees will come back to me. If you're okay with that, we agree for a lesser price. And then your bees will take off anyway, because the new bees will be born and produce, so we can openly discuss that. And if your neighbor says, fine, that's fine. But the neighbor may say, hey, I want a full developed colony. You can tell him, you can buy one of those from somebody who lives more than 10 miles away. That's one thing. Or you can buy them from me, but move them 10 miles away. And if it's summer season or active season, the lifespan of a bee is only 35, 45 days. So keep them there for 45 days. All the old bees will die off. And they won't know this geographical area anymore, the new bees. Then you bring them back and place them there. So they only, these, this colony, only remembers the map of 10 miles away. But if you move them more than five miles, then they will have to erase that data and do reconnaissance of the new area. And then they will only know this area and remain here, you know, 100% of them. Maybe there's one marathon runner that went 10 miles all the way out, you know? <laughs> that bee will be lost. <laughs> Basically, you'll go back where it used to be. Okay. One more thing, One, why else would you like, was that a question? Okay, uh, why else would you like to have bees in your garden? Besides all the improvement of your yields, of your crops, especially things like fruit and berries that require bees, or almonds rely 100% on bees, on honeybees. Why else would you like bees? Well, honey, wax, propolis, if you collect those, that's great. There's one more very important reason. As you introduce your, yourself to this wonderfully created world of bees, you are learning about your creator. That's where true education begins. You actually are in touch with something that God created. You are becoming God's sidekick, sort of. You know, you say, Lord, this is amazing. And very often I look inside of my colony and I break out in singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I'm on the mountain there, you know, singing at the top of my lungs because I find something very exciting or something very interesting or something that tells me how wonderful God is. And that's where education begins, uh, where you connect with those forms of life that are inferior and when you have a buddy with you, like my wife sometimes come out there, 
and, and we connect together and rejoice over some simple thing like a sprout of a potato, right? Many of you rejoice over that. We rejoice over a new queen being hatched, for example. And third thing, you connect with your creator through this simple means, learning about caring, learning intricate lessons about social living, about living together as a family, about living together under the governance of one ruler. Everybody has roles. They are defined. Everybody is in complete, um, in complete subordination to the role that is prescribed, all together working as one unit. Isn't that a wonderful thing to learn from insignificant little creature? And that's where it begins. There was a hand somewhere. Yes? Um, I've heard stories of whole colonies being wiped out. Are there any environments before you make an investment like that where they might not thrive? Yes. Um, the bees won't thrive next to a commercial agricultural farm like an orchard. An orchard during the blossoms will be sprayed before the blossoms, right after the blossoms. Um, it will be sprayed with harsh chemicals that will wipe your bees out. So you want to be in most natural, least invaded community like mountainous area or farms that are organic. Even if there's a commercial, aggressive chemical pesticide herbicide using farmer next door, you can ask your farmer, could you give me a warning a couple of days before you spray? And if he does that, then you can move your bees somewhere away for the time of his spray. Sometimes it's good to register with the local agriculture association in your, in your county. And any farmer that sprays harsh chemicals this week on their farm will notify three days prior to spraying the agricultural association. And they, if you are registered with them, the association will contact you as a beekeeper saying, hey, such and such farms will be using um, airplane air spray. So beware and move your bees or take precautions. If the climates are cool where you are, still cold, you can just shut your beehives for the day. Put a mesh um, plug on your hive so, so they still have air, but don't fly out. So keep them indoors for that day of spray. But if it's a hot weather climate where you cannot shut your bees because they need water to cool their hive, you know they have air conditioning, bee colonies air conditioning their homes. So they need water. It's like a swamp cooler kind of air conditioner. They need water for that. So if you shut your bees, they will die of, of, of overheating and asphyxiation and that kind of stuff. So yes, there are harsh conditions like that and you have to be aware of those. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.